All right, good morning, and once again, as we continue in Matthew chapter 5, looking this morning for, I think, the final time at verses 10 through 12 with blessed, the particularly persecuted, and this will be the fourth installment. So just real quick to kind of get everybody back up to speed on where we've been over the last uh, month of our time here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus come proclaiming the radical message of the gospel of the kingdom, literally the good news of the kingdom, that means nothing less than the king reigns. Friends, that is the gospel of the kingdom. Good news, the king reigns. And that reign is being manifest in the midst of His people. Jesus in the Beatitudes begins listing the blessings of the king. Literally, Christ and His blessings being formed in us. What Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 27 and said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Blessings that are for the poor in spirit right now. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are the subjects of the king. And the nature of the new creation in them is the character of Christ being formed in us. And this is His Spirit in us. His peace. His meekness. His hunger and thirsting for righteousness. And therefore, when we consider these things, we would say that the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly the Beatitudes specifically, is not a formula for a blessed life where you go in and plug in all of the variables and then you have blessing. Instead, it is a description of what the blessed life in Jesus Christ looks like as it is unfolding. For out of this Christ in us flows all the blessings, both of the now and those that are not yet. His mercy, His inheritance, satisfaction, and even being declared the very children of God. Such a radical kingdom in the midst of this world will not draw a favorable eye, but instead will bring forth persecution. Not just any persecution of any variety, but instead persecution of a very particular type. Persecutions for righteousness' sake. Persecution for His sake. When the people of God, fulfilling the righteous standard that is Christ in them, causes persecution to come on us because of the presence of Jesus Himself. And so, you have to ask the question, if this is coming, and Jesus says it is, and it's a blessed thing when it does, and how do we respond? And in short, the answer is this. Not like the world. Not with fear. And not with repaying reviling for reviling or evil for evil, but instead, honoring Christ as Lord. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is particularly important when it's hard. And friends, it's going to be hard. When the righteousness of Christ is displayed, it exposes evil that then must either be acknowledged and abandoned or justified. And it is this very testimony of Christ, this very one, this testimony of Christ that is necessary for evangelism is the same testimony that brings persecution. Which is why the church can never get away from it. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes to the young pastor and says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. 
many men, when they're exposed to the righteousness of Christ, will choose not to abandon their wickedness, but instead to attempt to justify themselves, to put God in the wrong, that they might be in the right. And it always begins with reviling and false slander. And though slander is not violence, violent persecution always begins there. For if you want to be able to treat a group of people as evil, you must first convince people that they are. And so, century after century, and millennia after millennia, persecution has come upon the faithful saints, the church of Jesus Christ. A persecution, Jesus says, just like the prophets endured, for indeed, it is the same persecution because it was the same Spirit in them that provoked it as was in the apostles and as is in us. What you see over the course of the creation is the clashing of two kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of lawlessness. And anytime you have two unchanging realities interacting with each other, you always get a predictable result. It always begins with Israel. Try to cut the promise off at the vine and you won't have to deal with the branches. And when it fails there, it turns itself, according to Revelation chapter 12, upon the other children of the woman, upon those who follow after the testimony of Jesus Christ. It turns on the saints. Now, that's a lot of information in a real small review package. And I will say this, knowing all of and the details that go with it, knowing all of that is important. And it's important because you can't have wisdom without first having knowledge. Now, knowledge isn't wisdom, but ignorance guarantees you don't have any. You can't have wisdom without first having knowledge. But if you intend to prevail in what Christ is speaking of here, it will require more than just understanding the facts about the way this situation will unfold. And so in our final time together here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, I want to look today at how the people of God prevail in the midst of a very specific persecution. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Christ continues and says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, over the course of the last four weeks, we've talked about a particular persecution. A particular persecution that is coming for righteousness' sake. That is coming because of Jesus' sake. That is coming upon His people because He is being formed in them. And being particular, it has certain identifying characteristics. The first thing I want you to notice in 10 through 12 today is the switch in the pronouns where Christ goes from speaking in the third person to speaking in the second person. And what We just want to bring that down real simple. It means it goes from talking about people in theory to talking about me and you. In verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted. In verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you. Blessed are you. 
The persecution for righteousness sake is a personal persecution. It's going to be about you. It's going to be about your spouse. It's going to be about your parents. It's going to be about your children. It's going to be about your nieces and nephews and your extended family. It's going to be about your friends. It's going to be about fellow Christians in your workplace or at school. It's going to be about members of your church and fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It's personal. Personal. It's not abstract. Secondly, what we saw last week, is this persecution that comes personally will come with unexpected, unforeseen betrayal by people that you thought you could trust and will be inherently violent in its nature. Let's go once again a couple of chapters over to Matthew chapter 24 this morning. We're not going to camp out here for a long time, but I just want to remind you of a couple of things. The nature of this persecution when it comes will contain unexpected, unforeseen betrayal by people you thought you could trust and will be inherently violent. In verse 13, or excuse me, in verse 9, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be an increase, the love of many will grow cold. And so here you have a situation where after all sorts of things that don't have to do with the ultimate expression of this kind of persecution that is the Great Tribulation, when all sorts of stuff that don't have anything to do with that end, and this thing actually comes, and it looks like all the ones that have come before it, it's just greater than what you see is violent death amongst the people of God. But this does not come from what appears to be outside. Man, it's so easy. It's so easy when the attack comes from the them and not from the us. It doesn't come from what appears to be outside and foreign to the church. It comes from what appears to be inside the church, but has indeed actually always been false. And because lawlessness will be increased, this partnership between the fallen sentient beings, between fallen man and fallen angel, when this partnership increases to this degree, it will cause what appeared to be love and what is indeed actually a type of love, just not the type that accompanies salvation, that many had possessed love for Jesus because of what He could do for them, love for Jesus because of the position that put them in in society, love for the church because it gave them a, a societal structure and something to operate in, love for the idea that one of these days they'll die and go to heaven and not go to hell, but not actually love for Jesus Christ. Man, that love's going to grow cold. When the pressure gets put on, it says many will fall away and they will betray one another even ones that you thought you could trust. It's personal. There is betrayal. There is extreme violence. And if you are actually saved, endurance to the end is a necessary component of salvation. And the reason we know that is because what Jesus says. In verse 13, He says this. Let's go back to 12 just for context. 
But because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And if you want to know what their enduring looks like, he tells us, and this gospel of the kingdom, this good news that the king reigns, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It is personal. It is inherently violent. It, it, it affords all sorts of opportunity for betrayal. And if you are actually saved, the necessary component is endurance to the end in proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. Guys, let me tell you, We've been in, in, in 1 John on Sunday nights. And John talks a lot about the nature of, of the new creation being formed in the saints and, and the struggle with the old flesh. He has a couple of points there in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 that he keeps coming back to. He says, look, here's the thing. If you say that you walk in the light when actually you walk in darkness, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. It's fake. On the other hand, if you say that you are without sin, you make God a liar because He says you have it. The good news is, is when we do sin as His people, we have not only a propitiator, but also an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous that stands between the judgment of a holy God and us by means of His own blood. That is true. Friends, it is completely possible to stumble in your faith. But the fact of the matter is, is if the final condition of your heart on the day that God has appointed for you to die is one that is in denial of Jesus Christ, then you better believe He'll deny you. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we're faithless, He remains faithful. Our faithfulness doesn't reflect on His faithfulness. He's faithful whether you are or not. And He has certainly been faithful at some point in time in all of our walks as Christians, unless you're a way better one than I am, to pull me back. But the fact of the matter is, is if your final condition on the day that you were called to account is that of Judas Iscariot, you can make all the little confessions you wanted to beforehand and it won't matter. Endurance is necessary. It is necessary unto salvation. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Or if you want to put it the other way, which I would be completely okay with, the saved endure. This is who we are. And it's what we do. In other words, Jesus really does expect His people to be willing to pick up their cross and die. This is something that is expected of us. Man, when you're leading your kids to Christ, when you're rearing them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, this is a thought you need to have in your head. So the question is then, how do you do that successfully? Because we got to admit, most of us have grown up in kind of the bubble that is not the historic norm for Christianity here in the United States in the 20th and into the 21st century. And so we don't know what it's like to have this kind of pressure put on us. 
So how do we do that successfully? If this is what Christ requires, the ones who endure to the end will be saved. When there is violence and, and betrayal and it's very personal, then, then how do you actually do that? Because we've not been there before. How do you do it successfully? And this morning I would say this. You meet particular persecution with a very peculiar form of joy. And so once again, back in chapter 5 of Matthew, and just this time looking at verse 12, because that's really where we're going to be at today. In chapter 5 and verse 12, Jesus finishes with this. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are you when other people utter all sorts of false accusation, all sorts of slander on Christ's account. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. As a matter of fact, what you should do is rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Now guys, I would not feel comfortable giving that kind of command at all if Christ wasn't the one giving it to us. Like, that, like initially that sounds pretty callous. When you have people that are suffering the kind of faith, and we just kind of ran down a quick list last week of a handful of the way the apostles died, right? When, you, when you've got the persecutions that are coming and people are going to live through the stuff that these people are going to live through, and a lot of them aren't going to live through it, they're going to die through it, like to, to go, hey, listen, it's good, rejoice and be glad. That seems a little callous if you didn't already know how much Christ was going to suffer for the same thing. And him knowing full well how much he was going to suffer is still willing to say this to his people. So it makes me want to take kind of some stock, you know, and step back for a minute, look in the mirror. Man, this is a peculiar joy. This is joy not on the sunny day. This is joy not on the mountaintop. This is not joy when things are going well. This is not even joy when you've just had a bad run for a couple of months and are having a hard time, you know, turning that frown upside down. No, this is joy in the midst of Christ-centric persecution. Rejoice and be glad. Man, that's some peculiar joy. That's, that's weird stuff. But really, what Jesus is saying is pretty straightforward. Does it take a, a deep theological grasp to understand what he's saying here? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so what Christ is saying is, is simply this. You know, some of the most powerful ideas are pretty simple. What he's saying is simply this. Look, the benefit to you, I've been telling you about all this blessing that is me. It's my blessing that's being formed in you. The benefit to you when you're persecuted for my name's sake, is greater than the cost. Fair enough? I mean, it really is straightforward. The benefit's greater than the cost. Here he is, standing up on the hillside outside of Capernaum, looking over to the Sea of Galilee. He says, guys, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Rejoice and be glad. It's worth it. The benefit's greater than the cost. Now later, and I don't know this to be a fact, but I, I can't help... Knowing what Peter is going to say and knowing that he was at this sermon, you can't help but think that specifically what Christ was saying here influenced what he was going to write later by the Spirit of Christ that was in him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, Peter expounds upon this idea that the benefit is greater than the cost. 
So rejoice and be glad. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting how the roles change? Because God has blessed him. It overflows into him saying, Blessed is God. And he's going to talk about the salvation that the poor in spirit have received. He says, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He says, guys, listen, there is blessing that is now. You have received this grace, and there is blessing that is not yet. There's blessing in Jesus that is still to come. This is being guarded in heaven for you. It is undefiled, unfading. It is perfect, and it is being kept there waiting on you who are the inheritor. Crazy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, Jesus isn't making an analogy. Peter says, man, it is there, it is yours, and it is being kept for you. And that benefit is worth whatever cost the world puts on it. And he highlights that cost. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, just in case you got kind of wiggly there and thought the various trials that you were enduring was too high of a cost. No, remember the value of the benefit. More precious than gold, though it perishes by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Because endurance in the midst of these things is part and partial to salvation. And so you walk through it, the various trials, you rejoice knowing that the benefit is greater than the cost. Jim Elliott, the missionary and eventual martyr, grabbed it this way when he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But Jim wasn't the first guy to think that way. <laughs> because that's what Jesus is telling him. That's what Peter's telling him. And it's what the author of Hebrews was reminding the Hebrew Christians about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. He said, Look, guys, if it starts getting too hard, I want you to remember what you've done before and why you did it. He says, Recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. It's personal. It's not just happening to you, man. It's happening to your family and your friends and your brothers and sisters down the pew. For you had compassion on those in prison. And listen to what it says. 
you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And there's that peculiar joy. Why in the world would you joyfully accept the plundering of your property? You guys lock your doors? Maybe have a safe? Keep some stuff in the bank instead of all of it at home? Anybody want to joyfully accept the plundering of your property? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and a hiding because you understood the benefit was greater than the cost, you could rejoice and be glad. I want to talk about the concept of the necessity of joy in enduring persecution. Because joy when it comes to persecution is, is not just an incentive to get through it well. Joy is not just a fringe benefit that makes the persecution. It's, it's not a spoonful of sugar lets the medicine go down. That's not, what, that's not what the joy that Peter is talking about. It's not what the joy that Christ is talking about. That's not how it functions. That's not what it is. That's not what it does. It's not something that's there to grease the wheels when times get tough and where you can say, you know what? This would have just been unbearable, but God gave me a little joy and so we made it through it. That is not what he's talking about. Instead, when this type of persecution comes, and I'm not just talking about the ultimate expression, but that same deal where when you have the same opposing forces interacting time and time again across history, you get a predictable result. When this kind of persecution comes, joy is not an accessory. It is an absolute necessity. Without it, you will fail. Without it, you will not endure to the end. Without it, you will not pass the test. Without it, you will not take the gospel of the kingdom to the end of the earth. Without it, without joy, Brian Williams will buckle like a $5 lawn chair. It's not an extra. And for those of you, both men and women, and you know me, and I know you, those of you that think I'm pretty tough, I can just grind it out. I'm here to tell you that you can't. You can't. Look, we've already established that it is Christ formed in us. His Spirit, His peace, His righteousness, His meekness, great power under particular control. It is Him being formed in us. It is the new creation, the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, that provokes both blessing and persecution. It's Him in us that brings blessing from Him. It is Him in us that brings persecution from a lawless world. We've already established that. This is His peace, His meekness, His righteousness, His mercy, and therefore it's also His persecution. This is not our persecution. This is the persecution of Christ that is being directed at the vessels of clay which contain the precious gift of Christ. Now, you and I will not be persecuted to the ultimate degree. We may be persecuted unto death. But you know the old saying, anytime you're judging a contest that is, you know, um, that is subjectively judged, you know, like, something really cool like synchronized swimming, right? <laughs> you never give a perfect score. 
And the reason you don't is because no matter how slick it is, here in about five minutes, somebody else may come along that impresses you more. What are you going to do then? That's not the case here. And you can pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs and you can read. Because let me tell you something about this persecution. Inherently violent is an understatement. A ban against cruel and unusual is not only not in the book of lawlessness, but it's pretty much forbidden. You just look at what they've done. Let me tell you, none of them died as hard as Christ died. None of them died physically as hard as Christ died. It was the perfection of the wrath of God upon physical sin. None of them died spiritually as hard as Christ died when He was crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Man, if you're His, you won't ever cry that. And not be accurate. He was accurate. No one's ever died as hard as Him. He was persecuted to the ultimate degree. And when that persecution came, the means by which He gained victory was nothing less than joy. It wasn't omnipotence. It wasn't just like, let me show you, let me flex a little bit and show you what I can do. The Scripture says He could have used that. The scripture says He could have. And He shows the Romans when they come to arrest Him just a tad of what it looks like when the great I Am, when asked, are you Jesus of Nazareth, says I Am. And it put them all on their backs. He could have called for legions upon legions of angels that one alone could burn this planet to the ground. He didn't do it. It wasn't through omniscience. He said, knowledge is good. <laughs> You've got to have knowledge for wisdom, but, but it wasn't through knowledge. Scripture says that the victory that he had came through joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews writes and says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. We've got to endure. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. How do you do that? How do you run with endurance when it's this hard? When you've suffered the plundering of your belongings and affliction. How do you do that? You look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You look to Him and see how He did it. Because you're not going to find a better way. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, if that's how Christ did it, it's the only means that is powerful enough by which you and I might do it. That's it. It's Him being born to us. If, it, if that's the way He's going to do it, it's the only way that's going to work for His people that are being conformed to His image. And so you have to ask, what does that look like? And there's a hint in the text. Because of, for the joy set before Him, He had victory, despised the shame of all these things, and then did something. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That ought to give you a hint of what His joy was. We have to ask, what does this joy look like? Because it's not just any joy, man. This is a particular persecution and it is peculiar joy. Normal joy comes when easy things happen to you. 
when, when good things happen to you. This joy and rejoicing comes when hard, bad things happen to you. What does it look like? Is it joy and slander? Does it mean you like being talked bad about? Have people lying about you? About having your property stolen? Do you, do you like it when you come home and somebody's kicked the door? You know? Stole the stuff out of your jewelry box? Do you, do you take joy and pain? Is that the deal? And, and, and really, really have some you know, joy for just love some hardship. Can't get enough. You know, do you have a death wish? The answer is no. Christ took no pleasure in such evil. I mean, after all, it was Him in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39 that said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. But here's that point again where we come back to trusting God in the midst of these things. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is this joy that was set before Christ that made Him go, you know what, I can handle the cross. I can handle tearing my beard out and taking most of my face with it. I can handle the lashes. I can handle being beat to the point that I no longer am recognizable as a human being. And that's literally what Scripture says about Him. Have you ever drove past roadkill on the side of the road and you look at it and you go, you know, that thing's been hit so many times I can't tell if it's a big coyote or a small deer. That's the kind of stuff that He's talking about. Beat beyond the semblance of human form. What is this joy that made you go, okay, for that, that, I will do it. I will despise its shame. I will bear it. The Spirit of Christ in King David a thousand years before told us. When in Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, David wrote and said, Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence, in your presence, Father, is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If the question is what joy is sufficient to cause Christ to walk through the grave to get to it, David tells us you're not going to let your Holy One see corruption because you, God, you, Father, you, Yahweh, you, Holy Spirit, you are sufficient. You are the fullness of my joy with you there is pleasure forevermore the benefit outweighs the cost and what's crazy is just in case you didn't get that just from what's said there in Psalm 16 9-11 if you need the proof text we can go to Acts chapter 13 and see Paul preaching at Pisidian Antioch and says that when David said that he was speaking about Christ so if you need you know you need to lock and key proof text. It's right there in Acts 13. He says, He spoke of Him. That is the heart of Jesus Christ coming off the quill of King David. By the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Him. The joy that was set before Him. Man, the joy that was set before Him. I'll tell you, make no mistake, friends. He has great joy in you. Scripture tells us He does. 
He has great joy in the salvation that He's working in you. He has great joy in His church. He has great joy in your little babies when they're born. He has great joy in your little babies when they're conceived. He has great joy in you, but that was not the joy that was set before Him that caused Him to endure the cross. The joy that was set before Him that caused Him to endure the cross was the joy of God. And God alone. The joy set before Him was the joy of God Himself. It was the only thing sufficient. It was the only thing strong enough to cause him to be willing and able to walk through that which he walked. You know, we saw in ch at church camp this year in John chapter 17. I want to touch on it just again real quick this morning. In John chapter 17, in verses 1 through 5, in the um, in, in the high priestly prayer, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he's praying this. And, and he's going to pray for me and you. He's going to pray for all those that are going to believe through the gospel message. He's going to pray, pray specifically for the apostles that are there that have already heard the message and have come to know its truth through him. But before he prays for anything else, Jesus is going to pray for himself. And the motivation for what he prays, I, I, before we did camp this last year, I'd read it a thousand times if I'd read it once, and I never saw it for what it was. Jesus is literally praying for the cross. You go, man, didn't He say, if it, this cup can pass from me? Yes, He did. Well, isn't that a contradiction? No, it's not. This is the nature of the mind of a complex being. Look around the world around you. Tell me about the Creator. Tell me if you think He's complex or not. Uh, we get so uppity with ourselves. We think we're big, deep thinkers. We've got all these different priorities that are, you know, percolating what's going to come to the top. Dude, we we are nothing in His sight. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You think you're complex? The difference in complexity between an amoeba and my thought process is a much shorter distance than between mine and His. Such is the glory of His name. Here's what he prays. John 17.1 When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. Shine forth the goodness of the being of Your Son so that Your Son may shine forth the goodness of Your being. Glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. A ton of gospel there, but I'm going to refrain. I glorify you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory that Christ the Father and the Holy Spirit shared together in the union of the Holy Trinity before there were any stars, before there were any black holes, before there was space and time, before there was anything else was a glory that was so sufficiently glorious that it would cause the Holy Spirit in David to say, at your right hand is the fullness of joy. And in your presence 
His pleasures forevermore. And so here's Christ after 33 years in this fallen cesspool. In this fallen cesspool and saying, finally the time has come. Finally it's here. Finally. Now return me back. And if it takes the cross, it's going to hurt. The physical pain is going to be overwhelming. The emotional and spiritual pain is going to be mind-boggling because the, the spiritual pain is the exact opposite of the thing that I want so bad I'm willing to walk through to do it. All I want to do is get back to you. And in order to do that, the means that you have set forth is to be totally separated from you for a season. And you know what? The benefit is worth the cost. So do it. Do it. Let us return to what we've eternally been. What an incredible statement, man. That is... That, there is nowhere that I can find that is more clear about the depth and the passion of the love that the Son has for the Father and by reflection, vice versa. And if it was sufficient to get Him through the crucifixion, it's sufficient for you and it's sufficient for me. I don't care how hard it is. It's enough. And, and, and if it fails, if you fail in, under persecution, it won't be because this failed. It'll be because of jars of clay. You say, but here's the deal, preacher. The fact of the matter is, is that you know Christ had a touchstone. I was going to say to look back to, but I'm not sure how. Eternity and time in that respect work. <laughs> he, but he had a touchstone that he could that he could this stone of remembrance that says, "Man, return me to what was before the world existed." And, and I don't have that. I mean, we just read what Peter said. You know, it's kept in heaven for us today. It's ours. It's our inheritance. But but man, I I, I haven't seen it. I, I wasn't even there with Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration when just a little of His glory was shown. I mean, how do I draw on that same thing if I don't have that remembrance that, that you can draw strength from the past from to, to project into the future? How will this be sufficient for me? And the answer is this. Isn't it great when you have an answer? And Scripture gives you an answer. Here's the answer. What was not previously ours is now being formed in us as the gift of God. What we previously didn't have, that very thing, to be able to look and go, this is what I want, this is the fullness of joy, this is what I love. And to get it is worth the cost. We didn't previously have that. We were the enemies of God. And because of what Christ has done, that which we were devoid of is being formed in us. Look in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 
Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, okay, here's, here's your poor in spirit. There's is the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Something that happened with faith that has justified us has also caused us to rejoice in a very particular hope that is the same hope that Christ was rejoicing in, and that is, Lord, return me to the glory that I had with You before the world existed. So now we have this hope, and this hope that we didn't have before is founded in one thing. It's the same place that Christ's joy comes from. It's the glory of God. Not only that, because Paul's not done, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, wouldn't it neat how all this just works together like a clockwork piece? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because, and here's the big because. Here's your causality statement. How can this work for me? How can it be sufficient for me? Because God's love the very thing that Jesus said, I love that enough. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love that Christ had for the Father that caused Him to abide in the Father is the same love that has been poured into us and is formed in us by His Holy Spirit so that we in turn may abide in Him. So that we in turn may say along with Him, your right hand and only there. Your presence is the fullness of joy. But your right hands are pleasures forevermore. In, G in, in John chapter 15 in verse 8 through 11, Jesus would say it this way, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Well, how do I do that? Well, because the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God into you. A love that you did not previously have. Abide in that love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus says the same thing that is in me driving me to abide. That means to be at a place and in rest. That, that thing that is driving me to sit there on the night before the crucifixion and pray that the Lord would do it. That love for God is now in you. Abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, guess what? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy, when it comes to persecution, is not an extra. It's not, you know, it's not guacamole for 99 cents. Is an absolute necessity. Without it, without it, you will not endure. And in doing so, you will prove that while you may have had a love for something, 
The love was not for the love of God, the Son and the Spirit that His Spirit was pouring into you. But when His people do endure, because they abide, they can truly say, they can truly say, the cost was less than the benefit. And not only so, but the benefit was so exponentially, oh no, eternally valuable that the cost pales in comparison. Now friends, let me tell you, the flesh is weak. And especially over the course of time, man, lawlessness in this world can beat you up. Your compounding sin, my compounding sin, attacks from outside, disappointments and betrayals from what you thought was within, violence. Let's face it, for most of us, it's probably if that stuff comes upon our loved ones that's actually harder than if it comes upon us ourselves. It can beat you up. And every now and then, you've got to get in the mirror and this is what you have to preach to yourself. The benefit outweighs the cost to an infinitely eternal degree. I was going to do some stuff out of Hebrews and Revelation about um, Christ leading worship in heaven and how cool that will be and the fact that the martyrs get the best seats in the house. But I think we'll save it for another day. Now let me tell you something. You're going to love something in this life. You're going to. It will all have cost. It will all have benefits. There is only one that you can love where you will find yourself in a condition where the benefit outweighs the cost. I tell you, his price is high. He expects you to pick, you, you to pick up your cross. It's got nothing on him. And if you don't know Jesus, you should come to him today.